Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking. Can Theresa May get a Brexit deal done? It's proving to be a messy divorce. Taking Britain out of the European Union is the task Theresa May faces. Hard deadlines loom at every stage. The Prime Minister must now persuade Parliament to approve a withdrawal treaty, laying down the rules for the first two of three phases of Brexit, the actual withdrawal of the UK from the EU on the 29th of March next year, and a transition period until the end of 2020. The 585-page deal Mrs May has drafted includes a 39 billion divorce bill and the controversial customs backstop, keeping the UK temporarily in the EU Customs Union. It's a way of preventing the return of manned customs posts at the Irish border. Any binding trade deal would still have to be thrashed out in the 21-month transition period. Well, the Prime Minister's been clear in public that the deal she's agreed with the EU is ready to be signed off. She's uh, off to Brussels as I speak to sort out the next phases of that. But Parliament is the biggest hurdle. And if the British Parliament throws out the deal, well, the prospects of the no-deal scenario become very real. So I'm here in the noisy corridors at Westminster to meet Matt Hancock, Member of Parliament for West Suffolk since 2010, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care since 2018, and one of a rising generation of Tory politicians. Like the Prime Minister, he campaigned for Remain, and he was recently in a five-hour cabinet meeting that agreed that this draft was better than no deal. Matt Hancock, welcome to The Economist Ask. It's great to be here. Draw us a picture, if you could, of that decisive cabinet meeting for our listeners globally who might not be across every five hours of high drama in British politics. The discussion was very wide-ranging. People have strong views on constitutional matters like this. When we look at the British system, the point of cabinet is that uh, almost everybody there is themselves an elected MP has a constituency of their own right. We essentially are drawing together 25 uh, people, 29 including those who attend rather than our full members, from right across the country with a wide variety of views on this subject, who are all conservatives but have different points of view on the European question. And the Prime Minister then put her proposal that she's negotiated with the EU to the meeting And if you think that that sort of cabinet government is a good way to run the country, then this was a really terrific example of it, because people were very frank uh, in the privacy of the cabinet room. Um, They uh, expressed themselves, they put the pros and the cons, uh, and then, you know, subsequently those who couldn't live with the collective view of the cabinet 
departed it. There, there were tears, some tears and tantrums, weren't there? No, there was... Uh, that the, one cabinet member was in tears at one point. That's not true. I, I've seen lots of things written about the, this cabinet meeting and uh, some of them are true and some of them aren't. Um, and uh, that's one that uh, that isn't. Uh, there were, for sure, there were views expressed, but they were expressed in a uh, civil and firm but polite way, it was actually a very British thing. Uh, and then within the um, 24 hours after the, 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 the conclusions of the Cabinet uh, had been met, you know, the two of my colleagues, both of whom I get on with very well, chose that they couldn't themselves bring themselves to publicly defend the position that the Cabinet had agreed and chose to depart. And they did so again uh, in in a civil way, um, even if that was uh, you know uh, politically um, uh, impactful. So one of those, the, the more senior in this debate, Dominic Raab, the now former Brexit secretary, has said since it is a bad deal, it is blackmail on the part of the European Union towards Britain. This is not just a minor disagreement. A lot of your former colleagues, including the chap who was in part there to help get the deal through says it's a bad deal why is he wrong well i don't agree with him and in fact you know the 27 of us uh, of the 29 in that room um uh, agree with the deal and support it um the this deal is a, a a good deal for the following reason that when we leave the european union we need to do so in a way that honors the democratic result of the referendum which was especially driven by a need to regain our sovereignty and gain control over our borders, while at the same time respect the need for a high-quality, close-trading relationship on which our prosperity and the jobs in the UK depend. That was, in my judgment, the main driver of those who voted Remain. And this deal manages to respect both. It it, it, it ends free movement of people with the EU. It means that it is the UK that will decide our future rules and laws, even if we decide to align those rules and laws with the EU in order to uh, improve the trading relationship, that will be a UK decision in future, not a decision imposed on us. While at the same time, the deal manages to ensure that we have a very close trading relationship with the, with, with the EU. I think that's a good deal. Now, there's, there's, there's 585 pages... something of, you don't like about it. What don't you like course, about there's, it? There's 585 pages of legal text. There's seven further pages of political declaration. Of course, there are elements that I would have preferred to have been done um, slightly differently. That is the nature. What, what, of a, what would you have preferred to be different? Well, I'm actually not going to go into those because I think the deal overall is a good one. Um, you know, but I, somebody very close to me said said afterwards, the thing is, Matt, that if you have a divorce agreement, very rarely do both sides say that they were happy with every single term, but you accept it and you get on and you move on. And what we need to do is accept this because it is overall a good deal and then we need to get on with the future relationship with both the trade and the relationships with the EU, but also the trade around the world, the relationships around the world. Britain has always been a global trading nation, and this deal gives us the opportunity to get out and into the world in what I think is a very exciting way. Well, Amber Rudd, your fellow cabinet minister, who's just come back into cabinet after a, a period outside, has, has said just actually on the day that, that we're talking to you, in her view, she says Parliament, the House of Commons, where we're sitting, as you can probably hear by all the doors banging, will stop no deal. So in the event of 
Parliament not going along with what you and your cabinet colleagues have decided, Parliament would stop no deal. Is she right? Well, who knows? Because we have a deal on the table, and I think everybody should vote for that deal because I think it's in the national interest. If, the numbers are terrible, aren't they? The DUP uh, well, is saying, this, as, as I walked in this morning talking to DUP MPs, saying they will not vote for the deal. This is the party that supports you or allegedly supports you uh, in government. Well, I think everybody should look at the deal, read the whole thing and come to the view that overall this is in the national interest. But the question of what happens if this doesn't go through, the truth is nobody knows whether we'd end up with a second referendum, whether we'd end up with no deal at all. I don't support either of those options. I think that a second referendum would undermine the democratic legitimacy of the way that Britain is run. I mean, it's as big as that. And the second scenario is no deal. Now, that is the scenario that legislation currently provides for, should there be no, de- no deal agreed with the EU. And so to I that extent, Amber Rudd is right, that she is right, that, that no deal would be the option, but she says Parliament would not let it through, at which point you have an absolute constitutional impasse. It is, it is impossible to know um, the consequences of this deal not going through. Uh, I don't think that uh, leaving with no deal is very attractive at all. Uh, and I don't think that a second referendum is very attractive at all. And so not only should people vote for this deal because it is, in my view, uh, a good deal. People should vote for this deal because the alternatives are terrible. And that is a good reason. You know, sometimes in government, you know, you have, you have to choose between options um, that you don't uh, like. In this case, I do like the deal. Uh, but even so, even if you don't like the deal, it's better than a second referendum and it's better than no deal. I'm going to come on to preparations of your department, health in the event of no deal. I'm just a bit confused by calling you sort of broadly a Remainer, you you voted Remain, so is Amber Rudd. Why would she issue that warning that Parliament would not approve no deal, given that Theresa May had been been saying, oh, if you don't do what I say, uh, you could get no deal or no Brexit? Well, it seems one of her own cabinet members said, well, you're not going to get no deal anyway. Well, it's perfectly uh, plausible that we will get no deal. That is what the legislation currently provides for if if this deal uh, doesn't pass, and therefore I think we should pass it. Uh, What is the way, given that Labour has signalled very strongly, Jeremy Corbyn said repeatedly to his top team, that they do not intend to support you, uh, by my calculation... The numbers of, of Labour refuseniks who'd vote with the Tory government, quite a difficult thing to do if you're, you're a Labour person, is well, maximum would be around 30. You'd be lucky to get to that. The DUP uh, is supposed to give you a, a sort of supply of, of votes. It doesn't look like it's going to. The maths doesn't work, does it? To get the deal through Parliament. I spend my days running their health service. Um, there are, you know, the whips are brilliant and uh, I'll, I'll leave it to them to ensure this deal can go through. My, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a, I am not a commentator on this. Uh, I think that people should vote for it. And I've, I, I will set out again and again, as clearly as I possibly can, why it is in the national interest to vote for this deal. And I hope that all of my colleagues uh, follow suit. You've said you wouldn't back a second referendum. A lot of Remainers emotionally would like a, a second referendum, given that we do seem to be in, in some sort of a, an impasse. As you say, we don't know what will happen in the Commons, but it would be hard, I think, to see that deal going through as it is. 
Why would you not back a second referendum? Because we live in a democracy in which we respect the results of votes. You know, after a general election, if, you, if a party loses a general election, they may not like the result, uh, but they don't try to cling to power in the UK. I think that a second referendum would essentially be saying and be interpreted by a large group of people who felt that their voices had not been heard for a long time on an issue which they cared deeply about. A, calling for a second referendum would be like saying to them, you didn't get it right the first time. And I think that that is wrong. And a second referendum would be, it would be extremely divisive. Think of the divisiveness in the British debate at the moment over Brexit. How much more extreme that would be in a second referendum. And, uh, but it wouldn't be decisive. And people who are pushing for it, thinking, oh, this will sort it out, then we'll stay in the EU forever. This is just not true. Because can you imagine the reaction of people who voted to leave and won the referendum and then we're told a few years later, actually, we're going to nullify that. That is, it, it, it is just not what happens in a democracy. Can I just say, what is exactly that you're worried about? Are you worried about threat to civil peace? Are you worried about you know, violence on the streets? What is it that perturbs you particularly? I'm worried about the integrity of our democracy. I'm a Democrat to my core. When I go and visit schools in my constituency and, they, and talk about the role of being an MP, I say to them, what's the best thing? What's the best thing about our system in terms of when you have this vote? And they come up with sorts of all sorts of interesting answers. And eventually someone will say, it's if you don't get the votes, you lose your job or something like that. That, that is what, in essence, democracy is about. So, when so a actually, vote happens, the people who win the vote... That is what we respect and follow, and we do not go back and ask a second time. So you welcome the fact that we held a referendum. You think the referendum was a good idea? I voted for it. And, you and, st- and I'll tell you, and I'll tell you, yes, I voted for it, and I'll tell you this, Anne, I said in advance, when I thought that Remain was going to win, I said everybody must respect the result of this referendum. And lots of people who are calling for a second referendum, they said the same, and that's what they should do. We're sitting here in your office, all this lovely Pugin wallpaper, the good old House of Commons, uh, last redecorated in, in the last century. Somewhere down one of these corridors, Jacob Rees-Mogg, one of your colleagues on the strong Brexiteer wing, is trying to get 48 letters to call vote. No confidence in the Prime Minister. Is he going to get them? Well, I, I, I doubt it. Um, they said last week they, that the, these letters were in... Uh, and then the next day they said they were in, and then the next day they said they thought they'd be in, and um, now they're not. The uh, the truth is, in the parliamentary party, there is very strong support for Theresa May, as there is across the country, because she is undertaking a difficult negotiation with dignity and determination and a certain degree of poise. And she is doing that clearly in the national interest. Gosh, sounds like her so much. You want to hang on to it. You want to fight the next election as well. And the, 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 the job that she is doing now is so uh, important. And the idea that we would go through a leadership challenge, not just in any old party, but in the Conservative Party, which exists to serve the national interest, in the middle of an incredibly difficult negotiation, is, is for the birds. Let's talk about your own preparations. As you say, you're, you're responsible for, for the NHS, this vast machinery of the NHS, vast numbers of, of people obviously working in it and affected by it. In August, you announced plans to stockpile six weeks of essential medicines in case supply chains were delayed uh, in, in the event that we had difficulty getting out of the EU, which uh, looks like it 
could happen. How much would that cost and what's your calculation there? Well, of course, the extra stockpiling of medicines uh, will, uh, those medicines that are stockpiled will be sold to the NHS anyway, so we won't be paying for those. Um, But we will help companies to ensure that there's facilities to in, in which to store the extra amounts that are needed. Now, uh, uh, um, medicines are uh, are held and stockpiles are held of medicines all the time in the NHS. From time to time, there are shortages of, uh, of medicines that happen due to disruptions of all sorts. There was a shortage of EpiPens earlier this year, for instance, which m- many people will know about. And so this is building on normal uh, practice. We've put out an invitation to tender to make sure we have enough uh, capacity for the extra storage that we think will be needed. Um, uh, I haven't put a figure on it because I want to get the best possible value for money, and we haven't had the um, uh, we haven't closed on the bids yet. But it's, it's in the it's in the low tens of millions of pounds. Right. I mean, what is really worrying people is. As it seems very unclear how this deal gets through through Parliament, you've said you don't know, none of us really know, it is possible that we blunder into a no-deal scenario. Is that correct? Well, just to pick you up on something, I haven't said I don't know. I've said very clearly that I know how this deal gets through, and that's that people should vote for it. Well, um, the, but nevertheless, having yeah, said that... I think my Auntie Betty could have concluded that, but, you know... Well, that, there you go. So that, uh, maybe, but, but maybe, may your, maybe your Auntie Betty has, uh, has the, 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 the wisdom of crowds. But my, the, my point is that you need to prepare actively for a no-deal scenario, and it's incredibly important because yeah. it's, the, it's the health service. Now, the, the worry is that if we don't get essential supplies sorted out correctly, and it's very difficult to predict how long this would go on. People could die or at least suffer as a result. Is that true? Well, we are doing all of the work that we need to ensure that there is an unhindered supply of medicines. And I'm confident that if everybody does what they need to do, then we will have that unhindered supply of medicines. As you say, we're we're going to stockpile an extra six weeks of medicines for longer periods uh, than that if it uh, if it comes to it, then there are other routes that we can get medicines in through. For instance, by aeroplane, if the blockage is on the border. And um, we're working on all of those contingencies to ensure that there will be an unhindered flow of medicines. And that's where the logistics gets complicated. That's the point at which I suppose you would have to have the army on the ground to help. That thought has been mooted. Is that something that you're also preparing for? That's nothing that that's not come across my desk. Uh, my uh, the work that we're doing is on the logistics of medicine supply. Forty four percent of NHS trusts. These are the the organisations that sort of run the NHS uh, on the ground. Some of them are very large. Already run deficits. Uh, you came into the job at a, a time when NHS uh, funding and the the effects of sort of cutbacks on NHS funding were in the news. So that means even a small increase in costs due to the complications of Brexit can put extra strain on their budgets. What's your answer to that? Well, there hasn't been a reduction in the money going into the NHS. In fact, it's gone up every single year, and we've protected it from the um, reductions that have been seen elsewhere in public services because it's the it's people's number one spending priority. And so, following that, we are now going to increase the budget by twenty point five billion pounds in real terms over the next five years. It's the largest and longest financial settlement that any public service has been given 
in the UK. And um, we're, we're currently working on the plan for ensuring that that is spent in the most efficient uh, way possible and reducing waste. Now, you say that there may be a complication from Brexit here. Actually, in terms of certainly in terms of drug supply, the, the drugs are supplied on long term contracts and there's a negotiation for the next five years ongoing now. I, I don't see a material impact of Brexit on that. It, it sounds as if, it, it, tell me if, if I'm, I'm wrong, it's just I have come over you know, from, from talking to, to other journalists, other programmes in Britain keep talking about this, that you think this is slightly hysterical, this fuss about uh, what could happen in the event of no deal in terms of health. Is that right? Uh, that No, I wouldn't characterise it like that. I'd say that it's extremely important to get right. There's an awful lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, I'm confident that if that work gets done and if everybody plays their part, then we can get this right. But uh, people are right to think that we need to do a lot of work to make sure that people can get the medicines that they need. You were off in Paris at the GovTech summit last week, recently, which does what it sounds like it does, advocating for a tech revolution in, in the NHS. Well, it's yeah. funny enough, it's my old economist beat, you you might remember, and I can't remember how, how many pieces have I written about the tech revolution in the NHS. Aspects of it are in place, but very patchily. Yeah. Lots of health trusts are not particularly technologically enabled. Yeah. I mean, what is it that we've been asleep about? Why are we still having to send you off to, to Paris to sort of promise the next revolution? Ha. Well, there's a, there's, I think there's a massive opportunity for using new technology and digital technology in particular in the NHS, uh, even to bring the NHS up to the same pace as uh, the rest of our lives today would be a big step forward. Uh, and and well, an example is um, that the rostering of staff in the NHS is largely uh, completely fixed in the same way that it often was in other areas of life 10, 20 years ago. And the use of e rostering at the last count was only uh, available in about 20% of NHS trust. So basic logistical things like that. I am now the proud, less than proud, owner of the world's largest collection of fax machines. And it's unbelievable that the NHS still uses fax machines when email is available and is so much more secure than sending a fax to a, you know, a destination when you don't know who will be standing by the fax machine at the other end to receive it. Um, it it's inefficient, it's, uh, it's unsafe, and it needs to change. But you see, the argument would run, your government, or government which your part, has been in power since 2010, and you're still sitting here saying this is completely unsatisfactory. What on earth was happening? Or could it be, let's not quibble statistics here, but that actually a constrained health spending has led to lots of that kind of progress no. and reform not happening because you no. couldn't you couldn't oil the wheels. No, that's complete nonsense. I mean, technology reduces costs in the delivery of organisations. Anybody who when runs a in. large... Yeah, anybody who runs a large organisation knows that. And I think that there has been a wrong uh, philosophy of the pro- of tech adoption in the NHS and I, and also a lack of leadership because it's been tried before a couple of times and when it's been tried no, most notably what we had the national IT program for the NHS which started in the early 2000s finally the plug was pulled in 2008 after 10 billion pounds had been spent on it without any material gains and the um, the consequence the hangover 
of that has been very significant and people lost their jobs at all sorts of levels in the NHS and so people have not wanted to go back onto this territory. Now, the philosophy was wrong because the attitude of that was we will, you know, the technology of the NHS isn't good enough, therefore we in the centre will buy a massive great piece of technology and get a company to come in and fix it for you all. And that is the wrong approach. And across government over the last decade we have learned how to do tech well and we've learned how to do tech well by setting rigorous standards so that systems can talk to each other mandating them so you cannot buy a piece of IT unless it fits the standards and then letting people on the ground buy the stuff they need and and develop the stuff they need with the innovations that work for them and and therefore harness the innovation of the private sector whilst delivering on the data revolution. And the result of this... This is longer than the Gettysburg address, isn't it? But it matters. The reason I care about this so much, as you might have gathered from my enthusiasm for uh, this topic, is that the combination of clinical data and data about your genome and data about how you live your life, off wearables and, uh, and what have you, put these data together and we have the richest source of learning of how to improve humanity's healthcare and save lives and lengthen lives than we have ever had in history. Matt Hancock, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And we want to know what you think. Will Theresa May manage to get that Brexit deal through Parliament? How might she go about it? And what do you reckon to deal or no deal? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.